Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Halper. How are you doing, Katie? Good, you? Um, good, good. Feeling uh, happy and healthy. Wow, great. Yourself? I'm good, I'm good. Uh, yeah? Feeling happy and healthy also, especially yeah. after uh, getting one of my uh, vaccines. Oh, that's right. Did I share that publicly? Yeah, you did. Yeah, no. yeah, that's great. That's great. I myself am not vaccinated and could die at any moment. No, that won't happen. Yeah. I myself, you know what, you know why I got my, did I share why I got my vaccine? Oh, uh, no. I, I paid extra. I'm did just you? kidding. No, oh. that, I was pretending I bribed someone. No, no, no. It's one of the perks of being Jewish is that you have potentially either six fingers on one hand or Tay-Sachs. Or if you're lucky, neither of those, just some asthma, abyssal ah, right. of asthma. That's right. We did talk yeah. about this. Yeah. I'm just doing my part to elevate asthmatics and tell you that you in New York State qualify for this uh, round of um, uh, vaccinable people. All great news, um, which we can just oppose against the, the, the awful news of the day, right? yeah. um, which we'll talk about uh, in a cheerful manner, because that's what we do here. Yeah, we try to, this is like a self-help show. Right. Yeah, exactly. We try to, we try to shepherd you through the valley of misery, right? Yes. With, with, with our cheerful demeanor. Right. So what's going on in the four food groups this week? Well, for Democrats talk, we have a tweet from Now This News, which clipped uh, this part from a town hall that Biden had last week. And the tweet from Now This is, watch President Biden comfort this child who is scared of COVID-19. I wouldn't worry about it, baby. I promise you. Here's how Biden comforted a child. As we've been talking about, the coronavirus is very real and very scary. And it's especially scary for children who may or may not understand. My children, Layla, eight here, and my son, Mateo, seven at home, um, often ask if they will catch COVID. And if they do, will they die? Um, they are watching as others get the vaccine. And they would like to know, when will kids be able to get the vaccine? Well, first of all, honey, what was your first name? Layla. Layla. Layla beautiful name. First of all, Kids don't get the vaccine, get COVID very often. It's un unusual for that to happen. They don't, they, and the, the evidence so far is children aren't the people most likely to get COVID, number one. Number two, the, we haven't even done tests yet on children as to whether or not the certain vaccines would work or not work or what is needed. So that's, so you, you're, you're the safest group of people in the whole world, number one. Number two, you're not likely to be able to be exposed to something and spread it to mommy or daddy. And it's not likely mommy and daddy are able to spread it to you either. So I wouldn't worry about it, baby, I promise you. But I know it's kind of worrisome. Are you, what, are you in first grade, second grade? Second. Oh, so you're getting old. Second grade. <laughs> well, has your school, have you been in school, honey? No, Nowhere. see, that's a, that's kind of a scary thing, too. You don't get to go to school. You don't get to see your friends. And so what a lot of kids and I mean, and big people too, older people, they just their whole lives have sort of changed. Like when it used to be it used to be able to just go outside and play with your friends and get in the school bus and go to school and everything was normal. And now when things change, people get really worried and scared. But don't be scared, honey. Don't be scared. You're going to be fine. And we're going to make sure mommy's fine, too. I understand 
Biden. It's not like he's the the president. He doesn't have to keep up with things like this. But, you know, I am someone who has a laptop and a, a cell phone. I'm very, very knowledgeable. I'm really a COVID expert. So I, you know, not working at the CDC, was able to find, you know, through healthline.com data that uh, children can transmit the virus even if they never show symptoms or after symptoms have resolved. It's widely thought that kids are less likely to get the virus or become seriously ill from it because they have far, because they have fewer immune receptors for SARS-CoV-2. The data shows kids can carry a, carry a higher level of the virus and be more contagious regardless of their receptor level. So, you know, it's not really true that they can't transmit it. And in fact, there's been a lot of data in cases of kids acting did, as did transmitters. He, did he say they can't transmit it, or did he no. say something like they're more, they're, they're less likely to? Transmit they're less it. likely to give it to what was it to give it to mommy and daddy? Yeah, sure. I think that's fair. I mean, you know. Oh. Well, you know why I, I don't think you know why I don't think it's fair. This why? is why Biden is encouraging the schools to open again, right? Right. And so I think this is all a bunch of malarkey that he's using to push this okay mm. now he's using kids as a human shield he is he's not shielding them he's gonna get every break there is when it comes to hit the rhetoric around covid and his handling of it and there isn't gonna be like a daily death toll with skulls over his head every time somebody dies of the disease and um and uh you know that's fine uh trump brought a lot of that criticism on himself yeah he was uh he obviously you know conveyed tons and tons of he conveyed tons and tons of information that was like like beyond not helpful um but the degree to which this the kind of sycophantic treatment of biden is going to perpetuate in the, in the press especially around this topic um especially if we have problems like uh, people dying after taking the vaccine, you know, um, I think you can, you can pretty much anticipate that, uh, that he's going to get benefits, uh, the benefit of the doubt in ways that he probably should not, you know, um, and he's going to, he's going to be treated as the wise, the wise old sage, uh, reassuring the country, which, you know, again, I understand because Trump was like the opposite of reassuring. You know, how he's 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 been credited for comforting children. I would like to scare adults. And this kind of, I think, comes full circle and explains why I find his comforting a child that much more uh, sordid and dark. And this is just an appearance um, on CNN. One of the things that the president said is he hopes and expects that K through eight schools will be open five days a week by the end of the first hundred days. I'm wondering if you can help clear something up here because the answers on this have been hard to come by. Does the White House, does the president think that K through eight schools can reopen even if teachers have not been vaccinated? Thanks for having me this morning, John. Yes, lots of news. And let me just say that CNN Town Hall last night was excellent. I do believe I'm a little biased, obviously, given the background. The president, I thought, was very clear last night. The vice president this morning, Vice President Harris, was on the Today Show, and she reiterated. And let me reiterate yet again, the president's and the administration's position is that uh, by the end of the first 100 days, which is around April 30th, the president and vice president do believe 
believe that the majority of K through eight schools will be able to be reopened and operating safely. How does that happen? That happens by uh, ensuring that schools have the resources that they need in terms of mitigation measures. Uh, that, that it happens by people social distancing, making sure that we are doing things like wearing our masks, uh, washing our hands frequently. And I think by the president also noted that by the end of late summer, beginning of early fall, uh, during the traditional school year, uh, September, I believe it is, that it is his hope that schools would be operating and open safely all over this country. And the way that we get there is by passing the American Rescue Plan. Sure, that Amer I will just say, John, that American Simone. Rescue Plan, I think it's an important point to make because that that plan has money for schools to ensure that they get the resources that it's, they need. It's not, it's not a trick question, and I feel like you guys have treated it like a trick question. I think people oh. just want to know what the White House position is on whether or not teachers have to be vaccinated for kids to return safely to school. The CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, says the science is that teachers don't necessarily have to be vaccinated for kids to return. And I think people want to know what the White House position is on that. The White House position is that uh, and the president and vice president believe that teachers should be prioritized for receiving the vaccination along with other frontline workers. And in at least 22 states in the District of Columbia, that's exactly what's happening. Prioritize is one thing. And I think there's wide agreement they should be prioritized. And why not? Is it necessary, though? That's the question. It really is a yes, no question. Well, John, I think the real question, frankly, if I can be frank here, is what you're getting to is, is it safe for kids to go back to school? And the president and vice actually president. Not. In this case, that's not the question. The question is, is it safe for teachers to go back to school? And that's, <laughs> that, that's a very specific question in this case. And again, I'm not sure. I don't understand why it's a hard question to answer. It, it may be that you want every teacher to be vaccinated. It may be the answer is, yeah, teachers should, if they can, be vaccinated before they return to school, but it's not necessary. Well, John, I think the president has been clear. The vice president has mm -hmm. been clear. And oh I think I was really God. clear just now that it is the administration's That's position. Right. The president We're and vice president believe that teachers should be prioritized for vaccinations. <laughs> OK, let me just say something. Yeah, go ahead, no, Matt, yeah. Go. And that's Simone Sanders, who was a senior advisor. She was I, a Biden senior I advisor. guarantee you by and the you, end of this administration, all of the Biden spokespeople are going to have a button they can press that, that uh, when they press it, the questioner on the other end of the line gets will fall directly, no, directly into a shark tank oh, yeah. uh, and be gobbled up on live television oh if, if they keep pressing a question like that. Right. Yeah. They'll, give them, they'll get a warning. Three strikes. Hey, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, stuff like that. Three strikes. You want to answer that? You want to ask right. that question again? No. About the vaccinations? You know? And now she's, she kind of got dissed, by the way, Simone Sanders, because she uh, was assigned to Kamala. You know, she's now Kamala's aide. Right. So, although maybe given Biden's health, that's Not actually really, a promotion. Yeah. No. But, but again, she, she lied about the CDC. I mean, all of these things should be totally disqualifying. Like she should be a liability. She should that after she lied about the CDC saying it was safe for folks to vote, she should have been fired, and also she should have become politically toxic, and and people should have been running away from hiring her. But to to be fair, that would have been exceptional um, accountability. So yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, reporters. Uh, 
it's it's totally unnecessary what she's doing and i, and I, I can't remember who the questioner was there jonathan martin cnn jonathan, you know, jonathan you're martin. the last or the COVID lie this yeah. lie this ev evasion or the actual COVID lie COVID well, lie was chris cuomo one of the things he's trying to convey to her is is not is like this isn't a hard question but also like you don't have to do this like you know we, yes like press professionals know that it's a hard job for um political spokespeople so when they get a question that where they got to give an answer that probably isn't going to go over that great you know they they tend to give people a lot of leeway like if you give an, an insufficient answer like you know our goal is that sure yeah. is that every teacher be vaccinated you know we, we don't know if that's realistic or whatever it is right they'll let them off the hook nine times out of ten rather than pursue it but if you just babble on and on and not answer the question it it tends to to um provoke uh even people who are like predisposed to like you yeah uh and you'll, you'll end up with a whole bunch of hostile questioners mm -hmm. in the audience when you might have only had one to begin with um that happened a lot with people like ari fleischer uh and tony tony snow to a like to yeah. a lesser degree like r.i.p yeah i mean like you just don't have to do that just give an unanswer you know yeah give a regular unanswer not a a big celebration of how i'm answering but not answering like right he gives it he says to her i mean he does he's like you know it may be that and that's code for why the fuck don't you just say this right lady. exactly like yeah. he says it may be that it's our hope but it's not necessary and she's like i i think that the president vice president and and, and frankly if i can be frank which we should start using that, Matt. Frankly, if I can be frank. Yeah. 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 That's a good one. Yeah. If I can be Thomas Frank. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Well, I have really short uh, Republican suck. Uh, and this is a good one. We're going to we're, we're both going to like this because this is this is like sentimental for us. This is this is this is Republicans going back to their their book burning uh, roots. Yeah. So this is this is from the Tennessee. This is a guy from the Tennessee General Assembly uh, State Senator Paul Paul Bailey. Essentially. What this is, is a proposal to ban uh, political demonstrations by, by student athletes. Uh, Thank God. So it's a letter to a, whole, to a whole bunch of presidents of universities, UT Chattanooga, UT, UT Martin, Tennessee State. And it's, uh, it says, dear chancellors, in light of recent news reports, we want to address the issue of our student athletes kneeling during the national anthem prior to sports competitions. The national anthem is a symbol of pride for America. It lifts our spirits towards the ideals upon which our great country was founded, uh, that all are, are created equal. And then he lists what it's, those ideals are for uh, and tells us when it was written during the Battle of Baltimore, um, blah, blah, blah. Uh, to address this issue, we encourage each of you to adopt policies within your respective athletic departments to prohibit any such actions moving forward. We view this as a teachable moment in which administrators may listen to concerns from students, but also exercise leadership in stating unequivocally what the national anthem means to this nation. Blah, blah, blah. So this is this is wait. Uh, the national anthem is. Um... Blah, 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 right? Right, blah, right. Blah, 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 blah. Then there's Not a note blah, that gives blah, a blah, 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 bl
this this but this is the Republicans we grew up to know to to, to love, right? The, the, right? the Dixie chicks hating Republicans, the the ones and, and 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 this is frankly one of the reasons why they're getting they're not getting any sympathy uh, or as much sympathy as you might guess on the free speech front because they'll turn right around and do stuff yeah. like this um, that undercuts their entire argument, uh, right. you know, against speech prohibitions and, and i get that it's schools like schools do have um a little bit more latitude in 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 prohibiting student behaviors but uh this is just stupid i mean yeah. the, the the whole kneeling thing at, at sports competitions just just like let them do it yeah you know like i i, I don't understand it at all yeah i mean yeah it's funny it's like we we you know we, we want to protect, you know, we cherish values of these United States of America, which include not letting people kneel, not letting right, people yeah. protest. Like, right, just, yeah, exactly. that's not what you do. Yeah. But they do it. Yeah. As you were saying. It's completely, yeah. uh, it's, it's idiotic. And, yeah. uh, and, and it's, and it's, um, it's just a classically like sort of Southern Republican thing to do. They, they know that, that it bugs a certain percentage of their voters to see they go to a football game. They want to watch football. Right. They don't want to watch. They don't want to be reminded of police brutality right. or whatever it is. And so, you know, they do this, but it's, it's totally against uh, you know, what they should be, what they should be for. So. You know what I call that? I call that the hypocritic oath. <laughs> Has anyone done anything with that yet? I don't know why. The hypocritic oath. Yeah. I like uh, it. I don't know. Instead of the Hippocratic Oath. I think we should, we, we, we we should trademark it. New segment, yeah. Yeah, all right. Uh, what do we got for uh, Isn't That Weird? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. Guess where it's from, Matt. Do I need oh, to tell you? Oh, wow. Daily Mirror. Okay. This is like made, like Taylor made for me, or kind of Taylor not made for me. Mutant baby shark discovered by fishermen with human face due to rare condition. Dr. David Schiffman a research scientist at Marine Stewardship Council suggested that the shark's unique appearance could be due to a rare condition called partial cyclopia. A mutant baby shark <laughs> with what appears to be a human face has baffled a fisherman after it was caught off the coast of Indonesia. The bizarre creature was found by Abdullah Nuran after he set off from Rotendau in East Nusa Tenggara on February on Sunday, February 21st. So this is hot off the presses, ladies and gentlemen and shark mutants. Um, he, this is kind of gory and I hate sharks, but he accidentally caught a pregnant shark while he was out fishing and she died after getting stuck in the Well, trawler. that doesn't count. What doesn't count? It's like a, it's an embryo shark. Anyway, go ahead, whatever. Experts have suggested its unique appearance could be due to a rare condition. This is a weird order of the story, not great reporting. It should have gone next to Abdullah 48 noticed the apex predator was pregnant with three pups. When he cut open its stomach, uh, actually, it could be her stomach. It doesn't need to be its, unless the writer is rejecting the, the binary for sharks. Um, when he cut open its stomach, there were two baby sharks inside, but the third one stood out. One of them had a distinctive appearance with two large round eyes underneath the nose. And then experts have suggested the unique appearance could be due to a rare condition. All right, it's disgusting, first of all, but it's almost cute. Like people who watch the show know that I hate sharks. This is looks like, first of all, it's like on a cardboard box. 
It's yeah. it, it looks like it's in a cardboard box that has been cut open. How would you describe that? Yeah, it's it, it they're lying it prone on a cardboard box and it has a stunned look on its face, but it's 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 a shark that's kind of got a it doesn't have teeth yet, so no. it's almost like it's smiling. Um, it, yeah, and it's almost it's actually, you know what's what's weird about it? It's almost terrible too because as a shark hater, I'm confront I find this um confronting. I'm I'm like it's challenging because it actually he he is really cute. Now, what happens when he grows? Now, hopefully, this rare condition means he d doesn't get teeth and become ugly. Yeah, I mean, if that thing was was nine feet long and swimming fast at me, I don't think I would find it cute anymore. I think I would find it well. If it like, didn't have teeth, you would, if you knew it didn't have teeth, it would be kind of awesome, actually. It'd it be like be, a dolphin, like a weird-looking dolphin. It, but I mean, I would I would die of fright just looking at right. its weird eyes. You know? It kind of looks like it's wearing a KKK hood. Now that it I'm does looking look at like it, it's right? A KKK hood. Because yeah. the top of its is it like what's the? It's also that the eyes are below instead of on top of the the nose. Is that on the, the side? Oh, uh, on the side, right? It really, it, it's really. It when I say it's cute, it's cute when you don't think it looks like a KKK hood. Obviously, those things are mutually exclusive. I saw it first as cute, then I saw the KKK thing. It kind of, um, it kind of almost works upside down too. I don't know. It's disturbing. Yeah. Um, and it's sad because it has two other siblings that are normal. So it's like, going to know it's not normal. Well, I, I, I hope this shark ends up with its own reality show. I like it. I like it. That yeah. is weird. Isn't that it weird? Look, it's, it looks, isn't that weird? It looks, it looks like gumbo. It looks like it's made out of whatever gumbo is Gum made out of. Gumbo or gumby? Gumby. Yeah, sorry, not gumbo. Shark gumbo. Yeah, gumby. Gumby. It is a little bit gum gumby like, yeah. 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 It's 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 a non threatening little shark with a with a weird face that's not quite friendly. Yeah. I think it is friendly. I'll adopt it. Is, it. it is it is friendly. It is I'll friendly. adopt it and raise it as my own. It we would probably try to gum you to death though. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. Come uh, and right. get also, me. Come and gum weird? me. It is weird. Yeah. Uh all right, so for isn't that terrible? So this is great. Uh we have to listen to this video. Uh, but let, let me read the let me read the story first. Uh, teacher shockingly discovers that his uh, Gen Z students don't know who Hitler is. I guess it's Rare it's rare.com, rare.us. I don't know. Who, I don't know what this is. Um, oh, Generation Z! I'm so glad that I, I'm a millennial, par partially for these reasons. Maybe baby boomers and Gen, Gen X people like to criticize millennials, but at least I'm not Gen Z. No offense. But I'm proud to say at least most of my generation understands who Hitler is, blah, blah, blah. Um, so basically, we're looking at a TikTok video made, shot by a teacher who's talking to his class. And it doesn't really need an explanation. Let's just play the video. It's really funny. Nazi guy. No! Like, what Nazi guy? I don't know. He like. He's like a terrorist. Helen Keller is a Nazi terrorist that is a male. Is that what you're telling me right now? Yeah, I'm going to write Helen Keller here. Yeah. Right? No. Are you thinking of Hitler? Who's Hitler? Is Hitler the... Who's Hitler? Who is Hitler? Helen Keller was the blind and deaf person who was fake. She didn't exist, but everyone believes she was deaf and blind. What? She was fake? Yeah, she was deaf and blind. What Pearl Harbor was, if I say Pearl Harbor. Is that a bridge? Dude. Do you know what D-Day is? He sounds like David Sorrell. A person? A rapper? 
<laughs> You're, are you being <laughs> we don't we have no idea whether it's true i me. hope it is true um because like it, it, right now twitter is like full of people who just rush to make hitler comparisons as soon as they can but if we if the next generation doesn't even know who hitler it's is it's not gonna work it's not we we won't have that anymore right and if they yeah. think helen keller is a, is a is a nazi guy and uh, Pearl yeah. Harbor is a bridge. A bridge. And D Day is, is a rapper. I like it actually. I think that's a I think that's a version of reality I could get behind, don't you think? Yeah, I, I think so. And also I like that I like that there was like I you know, we know about Holocaust denial, right? But I didn't know about Helen Keller denial. Helen Keller that denial I like. is a good one, yeah. That I like. That's she didn't exist. Did she exist? I never heard her speak. That's right. Have no, you ever no, seen she Helen did Keller? make noise. No, that doesn't really work, right? Because she did make noises. <laughs> like a dolphin, I, I right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, we're canceled, canceled. Um, she was a socialist, by the way. Oh my God. <laughs> this goes in the uh, the treasure trove. The, I'm kidding. That's from a movie, I think, isn't it? It's from, I don't know. It's that's from a good way to do it. Of men. Uh, that's a fun. That's from a movie. It's an Aaron um, Eckhart thing. It's a what? Aaron Eckhart made that joke. Although I don't think he made it about Helen Keller. I think he just made it about deaf people in general. What? In what movie? In the Company of Men. Oh, and Neil LaBute, right? Neil LaBute, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Are they canceled? Um, sure. I mean, I don't. That, oh, that movie never would have been made now without a trigger warning that these guys are supposed to be bad guys. Although I don't think Neil LaBute actually thinks that, which is what makes it right uh, weird, right. interesting, maybe I don't know. Yeah. But um, uh. Anyway, so yeah, Helen, Helen Keller, how, how can we, we be we, we, Helen we, Keller denial deniers? Yeah, we've never seen her. We've never, we don't know. We've never seen her. Or we, right? we've, she never confirmed when I asked, what, there are people who asked her, could she read lips? I gotta know if she could read lips. She's blind. <laughs> <laughs> not unless she was, exactly. she was holding them. Right, right. So that's what I'm saying is here's my Helen Keller denial revisionism look i've heard that there were people in a room with her who said hi are you helen keller are you real are you deaf and blind and she, and said, she didn't Z respond <laughs> well she said yeah that was the only thing she could say but and that proves that she could hear and was a nazi so i get the confusion <laughs> i get the confusion the mystery is solved yes and if 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 we could go back in time and ask her not through braille, not through signing on her hand or anything, but just asking her through her voices. Hey, Helen Keller, are you real? And if she said nothing, we'd know she wasn't real. And if we said, are, is it, do you deny being a Nazi? And she said nothing, then we'd also know. And I have a feeling that we could reconstruct those things. If we find her, where is she buried? <laughs> I don't, I don't know, but I-, I Disn't her. Disinter Helen Keller. I, I think Name need, my band. We need a, a, a new like Quentin Tarantino time travel movie where people yeah. go back, back in time and avert World War II by murdering Helen Keller before she can lead the Nazi revolution. Yeah. No, but no, by elevating her art. She turns, she teaches, she tutors, <laughs> she tutors Hitler in art and they make a, they run a school for artists. That's right. That's and right. she was a socialist, so she could have, and not a 
you know, not a national socialist. So maybe she could have, you know, persuaded him. That would have been good. They could have designed a really nice building together. Yeah. Right. A really nice accessible Accessible. building. Right. Yeah. And because then Hitler would have turned into, you know, an an ally uh, for he was he was Hitler was a little ableist. I don't know if you know this about him, Matt. I don't want his anti-Semitism to overshine his other important. He was a little bit disabled. Was he? A one testicle? Was that true? That, yeah, that whole thing. If that story is true. If that story is true. And, uh, but also he, you know, he he, he wanted to like uh, exterminate people with various, I think alcoholism, various right. disabilities. So, yeah. so I'm just saying if he had met her in a different point, a lot could have been different. Right. Right. A lot, a lot could have Well, we have to go back in time, make that all happen. Yeah. Um, and make the world a better place. So, uh, but I do. I, I am. I'm excited for the future where nobody knows who any of these people are. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to be fun. So, is there a uh, rapper named D Day? Because if not, I'm calling that, and that's my name. Uh, I don't MC know. Reed, is there a rapper named D Day? Definitely not that I'm aware of. <laughs> but my, okay, it's Miles Rodrigo right now. There's someone named D Dave. D Dave. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Spelled Dave or spelled D-A-Y-V-E? Uh, it's spelled D-E-E, Dave. Yeah, uh, no, that doesn't oh, no. count. No, it doesn't it's count. A pun name, I guess. All right, well, that, that was terrible. Isn't that terrible? It's... I don't know if it's a pun name. I don't know if that person knows what D-Day is. It's true. It D-Day be... was a character in Animal House, but he wasn't a rapper. I don't know. It's like, it's, it's tough to say. Mm-hmm. So let's take a quick ad break. What do you say? I, I say yes. I say yes. What say ye? Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Now back to our regularly scheduled podcast. I wrote a piece this week. Um, we're talking as we speak. There's a, um, a House Energy and Commerce Committee hearing um, about uh, fanning the flames, misinformation, disinformation and extremism in the media. And the reason this um, got a little bit of press attention is because a pair of uh, Democratic House members wrote a letter to uh, cable providers like Comcast, AT&T, Verizon, Cox, and Dish. And they asked them a series of questions. And the last question they asked was, are you planning to continue? Sorry, the two members are Anna Eshu and Jerry McNerney. Uh, and they, the last question they ask is, are you planning to continue carrying Fox News, Newsmax, and OANN? Uh, on UVerse, DirecTV, and AT&T TV, both now and beyond any contract renewal date? If so, why? Uh, and the reason that, I, that I, I thought this was freaky, well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's always a little bit weird when members of the government are suggesting removing anybody, any, any kind of media outlet, um, or clamping down on them in any way. Uh, but you know, we, we went through a moment like this in 2017 when the Senate Judiciary Committee 
uh, invited a whole bunch of like Facebook, Google, Twitter, uh, and some other platforms to Washington and demanded that they come up with a plan to prevent the foment of discord. And nobody thought much of it at the time, but the request in conjunction with like the threat of increased regulation, um, spurred a lot of these companies to start doing pretty aggressive uh, content moderation slash censorship. So the question I have for you before we talk about it, uh, this with our guest Shahid Buttar, uh, is do you, do you, do you think this is concerning or censorship or, uh, is it just, is it just a weird thing that a couple of random members of the house are doing? And, uh, is it something that should be, we should be worried about at all? I'm going to go with, Yes, worrisome. And worrisome in, in a way that's extra annoying because it's worrisome in a way that a lot of our allies um, would disagree with us over or disagree with me over, let's say. A lot of my leftist allies are jumping on board with this. And that's that's troubling to me. Yeah, all the people who used to be fans of mine who would have would have uh, objected they're long gone already so right yeah. yeah that's the thing i still gotta fight i'm still i can still reach some people matt that's right that's right yeah <laughs> yeah no it, it it's it's very frustrating and what we're going to talk about you, this with um you know we're going to talk in, in, in an interview with, with, with shahid but the the a lot of what's happened in the last especially in the last year is put it puts you in the position of having to take sides with people you really can't stand you yeah know? and um you know i don't i don't think i don't think you can argue that there's been misinformation on fox um but like they don't a, a they don't have a monopoly on it b they you know, there's often like confusion between misinformation and stuff that's just obnoxious which right. is or offensive or racist or offensive yeah or, or racist yeah exactly uh and which is uh, not dis dismissing those things as unimportant but you deal with those things differently right right and it's it's this is just another like you know um uh, station on this highway that we're on that um you know, is abandoning the traditional way we think about this stuff, which is, yeah, like they suck, but you know, and we sue them when we go over the line, but basically we we combat this by making better arguments. Increasingly, like the, the, the new approach is let's find a way to clamp down on them. And, there, and, and you know, there've been so many successful efforts at kind of deplatforming political opposition dating back to to Alex Jones, to shutting down the, the New York Post story, to locking Donald Trump's account, to um, shutting down QAnon, to the shutting down discussions of the you know election conspiracies, you know. So uh, preceding this, we we saw all these calls in the in in the media from people like Brian Stelter and um, uh, Margaret Sullivan, uh, Max Boot saying okay well now let's turn our attention to to doing something about fox which is um it's it's concerning right because it you know we we could end up with this 
almost like a quasi official news agency, right. you know, it, which they suggested. Remember the New York Times? They suggested that. Did they really? Yeah, there was a, a piece where they suggested. Well, now, of course, I'm reading from Fox because that's how it happens. Right. Right. Yeah. Reports on the other. But New York Times is turning to the Biden administration to help solve our reality crisis and calling on the new president to appoint a reality czar to combat disinformation. You didn't see this? Time techno Times technology columnist Kevin Roos. Mm, oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. He, mm -hmm. he wrote about it. Like, that's an example of one of the problems. And, and, and I, I talked about this, is that we now have this, like, bifurcated media landscape where none of the other um, kind of blue-leaning media outlets, they don't correct each other uh, the same way that conservative outlets don't correct each other. Uh, so if you get rid of Fox, OAN, and Newsmax, who's going to tell you when there's a screw-up in CNN or the New York Times, right? Like, you're going to have the, you know, a regulatory mechanism basically gone, you know? Um, yeah. So, it, I don't know, it's freaky to me. Like, the, the, this whole this whole tendency to reach for, like, let's just ban, you know, the, the other side, uh, I don't know, it wigs me out, especially since when this first started a couple of years ago, with Alex Jones and everybody's like, oh, we can all agree that Alex Jones is terrible and nobody's going to shed a tear that he's gone. Um, but, you know, and then when you raise when you raise the question, well, is this eventually going to mean that they're going to go after other kinds of conservative media? People said, oh, well, no, that would never happen. We're here like two years later. Right. Right. So. Um, I, I don't know. I don't. I, I. I think it's a crazy story, uh, but it could happen. You know. I mean, it, it's it's uh, it's not hard to envision at this point. It would only take a couple of companies to go along. Also, what do people think would happen for other sites? Like for with with another president in power, let's say. Well, right. Like, let's say we establish that they're able to do this. You know, I mean, first of all, there's there is they're not going to allow any kind of, um, you know, leftist right. uh, news organization to rise to any kind of prominence. Yeah. Like, the, you know, if, if they can do this to Fox, which is super capitalized. Right. And, Funded. Yeah. and has plenty of uh, political allies on the Hill. Um, you can bet that any anybody that has you know, any kind of progressive leanings is not going to have the juice to, to, um, to save themselves if they get in the crosshairs or something like this. So we're, it, it's yeah. what, they, what they're really looking for is like this kind of self-perpetuating, self-checking ecosystem yeah. of CNNs and Washington Posts and MSNBC, MSNBC, right. Um, so which very, would just be like a very, it would be like a, socially liberal diversity um promoting war machine right yeah exactly right i mean would they even this is the thing if you had that if you didn't have um you know smaller alternative media uh and you didn't have big conservative media like the next time we get into a fiasco, like the WMD affair, are we even going to know, you know, 
like that right. didn't that it didn't work out is anyone right. ever going to follow up on that like that's 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 the thing that about this whole this whole content moderation uh movement that that wigs me out is yeah. that you know and and people really don't get that like bad people can be right for the wrong reasons like yeah. if you know a right someone we hate may be willing to talk about something for reasons that we totally disagree with or maybe because we have some overlap um and that is just it's like a, i can't believe how stupid people are about this like uh do you have you you said in your piece that you wrote on substack um and everyone check out my substack piece coming soon by the way oh yeah absolutely but, yeah uh, but you said uh that you refuse to go on fox news yeah, I've never gone on. You've never gone on, yeah. So would you go on? Yeah, now I would. Yeah, yeah. because now you're a right winger. Well, right, who, yeah, now I'm who, a right winger. Yeah, no, exactly, no, yeah. I mean, it's like the, the... You've been asked to go on in the past, right? I have, yeah. And, and you know, I, I, usually, I always politely decline because, like, the the business model of Fox, I just never really liked. Like, right. I, always, I always felt it was, like, a little bit... It was a little bit like a predatory lender. They, yeah. they were... They were freaking out their their audience and playing on that and you know but now basically everybody does that you know and um and and if there are actually people who are going to try to go after this this network um uh, you know that that's really really scary it's yeah. it's it's a really bad situation um you know I mean, I, I I was thinking about it as I, as I was writing. Like, I, if if I had thought ten years ago that I would eventually be writing a, a piece in, in you know in defense of Fox News, like I, yeah. I, I probably would have jumped out a window. But right. that's that's where we are now. Glad you can read your future then. Glad you aren't yeah, exactly. clairvoyant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just yeah. I mean, I I can't. I always I'm always so annoyed by people saying that like you know Tucker Carlson isn't anti-war he's not anti-imperialist it's like yeah i know that like if someone goes on his show to talk about syria someone who hates his politics on almost everything it doesn't mean that like skepticism about syria is bad and right wing and it also doesn't mean that he is on this one issue progressive and anti-racist and woke it means that there are isolationists who oppose war for various reasons um, some of them deeply offensive to me, but okay. So give me another outlet to talk about it on. It just drives me crazy. This it's such a stupid discussion. Sure, and, and it's no it's strategy. Just, it's all it, condemnation. Some people are politically that they, they have political motivations to tell you things that other news outlets won't. Right. right? So, um, you know, when 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 uh, Christopher Steele in in a in a lawsuit, you know wrote the and it was in a british lawsuit and he wrote something to the effect of um you know he never expected his report to be public it was raw and unverified the, the intelligence there were like all the all of the uh outlets that had covered the p tape and all these other stories like they, they didn't cover that story the only only place that story appeared in was in a couple of like small right-wing outlets you know like the washington times um it doesn't mean that they're wrong. It just means that 
you know, the, maybe they're only, they're the ones, they're, they're, they're right. the only ones who are motivated to cover that, right. you know, so that has value. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it, it, it's really freaky that people want this homogenous uh, news landscape and they think that it's not going to back up on everybody, but yeah. we've been saying the same, I've been saying the same thing anyway for no. a while. So, it's, yeah. But look, there are legal issues to this, so right? I think and we're that, gonna, uh, now we would like to introduce you to someone else who says it, and you haven't heard from him, you know, on a weekly basis. So hopefully he'll be more exciting than we are. Yeah, exactly. even more exciting. Shad Buttar is a constitutional lawyer, DJ, rapper, and community organizer who won eighty thousand votes in November twenty twenty from San Franciscans eager to replace Nancy Pelosi in the House. He's currently exploring whether to run again in 2022 while working on creative projects, including a book and an album. We had him on last time to discuss controversies surrounding the coverage of his campaign. Uh, complicated subject. Uh, I think it, we can probably agree that he was dealt with uh, somewhat unfairly. Yeah, make sure that you listen to and or watch the last show with him to catch up on that. And uh, one of the outlets that we, we talk about which dealt with him unfairly, we would say is The Intercept. Although they are, in many ways, on many instances, friends of the show. You got to call them out. You got to call them in. Always an extremely interesting guy to talk talk to, a uh, constitutional lawyer uh, by trade. Um, and uh, we wanted to have him on uh, today to talk about uh, some things that are in the news. Uh, there are hearings in the Hill going on right now about um, some topics that are near and dear to his heart. So we uh, we, we wanted to... Uh, to talk to him about some of those things. So yeah. uh, without further ado, let's talk to uh, Shahid Buttar. So excited to have you back on Shahid Buttar. Great to have you. I think this is your third appearance. So you're up there with uh, Glenn Greenwald. Congrats. I'm very flattered. Thanks for having me. It's always yeah. great to be with you. I guess we have a thing for constitutional lawyers, Matt. <laughs> That's our fix. Well, it's a little bit of a, our strike zone. And also, you know, increasingly, sadly, it's become uh, a, a profession that's uh, uh, deeply in need. Um, a lot of these issues are just sort of in the news right now. Uh, we're As we're recording this, they're about to start holding a hearing in the House, the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Uh, they're calling it Fanning the Flames, Disinformation and Extremism in the Media. And uh, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is because the, some of the members of this committee have, have been um discussing various measures that they might consider um that would involve uh in their minds amping down misinformation i know this is something some people including myself in the past before i became a total expert on it uh struggle with i joked about making a game show out of censorship or first amendment uh violation can you also just define the differences and the relationship between those two things, because I think people throw those words around a lot. The First Amendment violations can stretch well beyond censorship, but censorship is a quintessential violation of the First Amendment. When you were asking, Matt, if it's problematic for a member of Congress to ask a platform to cease hosting content from a particular network or source, it's only a First Amendment problem if Congress acts. If a member of Congress is acting, they're effectively a private individual making a request, but without the force of law. So that doesn't rise to the level of state action necessary to, to trigger a First Amendment violation. But there are certainly First Amendment principles that are implicated. Mm -hmm. And in that space, we should be very uh, alarmed, I think, about public servants playing fast and loose with the distinction. Uh, when we, you know, when I think about First Amendment 
violations that stretch beyond the realm of censorship. Some of the ones there that come to mind include prior restraints on demonstrations. Like that's an arena in which I've spent a lot of time trying to stop governments from preventing people from assembling as we're constitutionally entitled to petition the government for a redress of grievances, which is to say it's not just a press freedom violation, it's a violation of several different components of the First Amendment at once. When we think about censorship, that's more you know specifically targeting the press, and so it's a little more specific an example, uh, one example among a broader set, you might say, that would fall under the First Amendment. And censorship that is not a First Amendment issue, um, can you just give an example of that and how we view that like legally and ethically? Yeah, to the extent a uh, head of state was, uh, for instance, inviting violence, you might say that a restraint on that, like, so for instance, the First Amendment allows time, place, and manner restrictions on speech. And so when you talk about incitements to violence of the sort that our former president was deeply steeped in uh, and, and practiced as a matter of course, those are appropriate places for the law to intervene. Now, the challenge here is that the law didn't intervene in any of those cases. So you might say that the few, few places where some sort of restraint would be legitimate, as a polity, we were hamstrung because the person effectuating these violations of our core commitments was the head of state. So it was a particularly pernicious problem that we faced at the time. Uh, you know, similarly, to apply this to the context of like demonstrations, you know, a judge might say in response to a petition from a you know, police department that, okay, if we let the uh, Occupy group or the Proud Boys demonstrate in this space, it, this time it would create a security risk. So instead we'll create this other opportunity for First Amendment expression. What that's actually functionally meant in the recent past is the creation of what we euphemistically call First Amendment zones or free speech zones, as if the entire country were not a free speech right. zone under the constitution that we right. fought a revolution to establish. You know, so now you have this phenomenon where, let's say you do want to assemble with your neighbors to petition the government. In a lot of cases, you can only do it within a circumscribed place and time, often effectively invisible from decision makers in the public. So, you know, the First Amendment values here across the board have effectively withered dramatically. And it's in that context that we're having this discussion. And if I'm an employer, a private empl uh, employer, and I tell my employee that they can't say something in the office or they can't write about something if they're a journalist, that's not First Amendment if I'm a private employer, right? But that's they, exactly right. But that's censorship. It could be. I mean, depending on the circumstances. Okay. Right. So what, yeah. I, I, sorry. So what is censorship? I know it's a huge question, but like censorship is not a First Amendment because I know it's if it's government intervening, right, that's First Amendment. But what is a non-First Amendment uh, violating form of censorship? I'll give you an example. Uh, when a newspaper editor refuses to print the findings of a whistleblower, that's effectively censorship. Uh, and just to you know, make that very sharp, the New York Times for a year sat on the story about NSA mass surveillance in 2004 that was ultimately re revealed by an AT&T whistleblower. This is eight years before the Snowden viola uh, revelations. And the reason I cite this you know, violation of the principle you're describing here is that that was a quintessential example, not only of censorship, short of state action, and thus not a First Amendment violation, but it was censorship promoting election disinformation. It was disinformation by the New York Times that allowed George W. Bush to win his second term. 
And you know, when we when we talk about disinformation and misinformation, one of the very unfortunate, uncomfortable realities we have to acknowledge is that there is no partisan monopoly on it. It's coming from all vectors all the time. And so, you know, once you start down this road of trying to distinguish from the government's perspective what is true and what is not, it's a very hairy thicket that we wade into. It's a reason, frankly, that the founders of our country and Supreme Court justices since have enforced this uh, paradigm where we invite more speech rather than less. And trying to ban a movie or a documentary. Is that or a book? Is, Absolutely, yeah, that's, that's censorship. It does not do. Yep. it could be an individual doing it, trying to do it. Right. The, the, the reason here, when we talk about private action versus state action, and, and the reason that distinction becomes not fuzzy legally but fuzzy practically, is that historically we presumed that only the government would be able to keep facts from the public. The idea being that if a private entity or newspaper or somebody chose not to publish something, you could just go somewhere else. Right. And that's historically been true. It is less and less right. true, particularly in an era of corporate technology monopolization. Right. And you know the role of tech platforms, and not just the obvious ones like Facebook, but also the ones that sort of lurk in the shadows like Amazon you know, and its control over web services. If these are points of intervention that allow non-state private actors the kind of influence that historically was available only to the state. And that's sort of a, a place where the monopoly antitrust issues and the free speech First Amendment issues sort of collide. And, and part of the problem, uh, in fact, is that I don't think people recognize generally the way that antitrust and monopoly issues are playing into this and setting up problems that we're trying to solve through the wrong mechanism. Yeah, and this is exactly what I wanted to get into because we have this sort of uh, situation that Obviously, the framers could never possibly have envisioned because uh, they like Friendster. Yeah. They were stuck on my my space. My space, exactly right. Yeah, you know, that, you know, way way back before yeah. electricity. Yeah, yeah. But you know, we we have we have this completely unusual situation where media distribution is, if not a monopoly, it's an oligopoly. It's a it's a handful of companies. Ad sales controlled by a hand handful of companies. Um, you know, broad, broadcast TV or, or TV distribution. Again, it's just a handful of carriers. Um, so, you know, what does that do to the power of the First Amendment when effectively the entire information landscape has been privatized? Like, so do, do we need to, have to think up an entirely new system for uh, protecting rights, both for, for the companies themselves and for the people who who are speaking. I mean, it just seems like we're, we're in a place where the law um, just hasn't caught up yet. I agree with that, but I don't know if it's a new legal or, um, superstructure that we need to create so much as mm -hmm. just enforcing the laws that we already have. So you're absolutely right that there are oligopoly problems here. Um, but if we were to apply antitrust standards that are already embedded in the law <clears throat> fairly to online tech platforms, they wouldn't enjoy the relative influence that they do. I do think that there are opportunities to extend those laws. For instance, one of the things that I've proposed is an extension of antitrust principles, particularly to mandate interoperability of corporate tech platforms. That would basically liberate users to, if you wanted to leave Facebook and take all your content and your messages and your contacts with you, you could do it. You know, at the moment, you can't because the, each of the companies have their own walled garden and they, they don't play nice with each other. Uh, 
but when you buy one brand of computer or another brand of computer, you're still sticking the power outlet into a socket that looks the same. That's an example of mandated interoperability. And there's no reason that corporate tech platforms shouldn't be interoperable. That's simply an expression of their own profit motive and their own interest in, in locking their customers in. The law should privilege users and people before companies, corporations, and capital. And that's an arena where we could actually do something useful here to allow more information into the public sphere, diminish that oligopoly problem, and not throw the First Amendment out the window, which is what some of the other uh, potential tracks seem to suggest. So, again, uh, a lot of the, hear the hearings that are going on today, uh, I doubt that issue is going to come up. Maybe it'll be raised by one, one or two members, but if we're lucky, often, if, if we're lucky <laughs> it's unlikely to come up. It seems like the, the, the craze now is for coming up with solutions that essentially aim to preserve the current structure of like hyper-concentrated uh, corporate power, especially on the distribution front. Um, and then additionally slapping on some new method of restricting content that would allow a handful of people to be able to make those decisions, um, essentially creating like a new de facto media regulator. You know, obviously we do have a big disinformation or misinformation problem. Like how, how would you imagine would be a smarter way to sort that out? Uh, you already mentioned the, the applying the, 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 you know, the, the antitrust laws effectively, which they don't, but is there, is there, are there any other things that you would think of doing? From the government's perspective, I frankly think there are a few things we could do here consistent with our constitutional norms. The reason why an antitrust solution could be so powerful is because it would frankly liberate, and when I say the market here, I mean to say the you know effectively infinite array of voices and independent grassroots journalists and others, it would liberate information to be free. And this is very much at the heart of our constitutional design, not only in the First Amendment, but for instance, in the Federalist Papers, number 10, Madison talks about the danger of faction in uh, you know, threatening stability. And the, the lesson that he derives in the course of that piece is that the only way to address the destabilizing influence of factions is to invite them all in. And that's paraphrased you know, a few hundred years later, Justice Brandeis describes how the solution to, to bad speech is not to restrict it, but rather for more of it. And so many of the solutions being discussed on Capitol Hill take the form of trying to restrict and diminish. And in fact, the answer to which America has long been committed across both parties as a constitutional, not just a political matter, has been fight wrong speech or inaccurate speech with more speech. And, and again, you know, the, the problem here emerges precisely in the fact that there aren't alternative vehicles, right? If Apple removes you from the App Store, you know, your outlet effectively is invisible. If Amazon decides to deplatform you, you're effectively invisible. If Facebook suppresses your content like they did to Mother Jones, you know, these are, these are private actors leaning very dramatically on the scale of public opinion. And, and that's a, a, a dynamic that antitrust was not necessarily constructed originally to confront. It was much more about limiting corporate power. What we're observing here is that the danger that accumulated corporate power presents to our country is greater than it has in the past because we're not now talking about monopolistic firms locking up a bridge across the Mississippi, though that's, that was problematic too until antitrust law let any competitor use the bridge. Now we're talking about companies controlling 
the organs of information. And, and this is a little bit uh, a stretch, but effectively brainwashing people. When you have Americans who are spoon fed some version of a truth, we can't rely on the veracity of whatever that truth is, as long as there aren't alternative narratives to combat it. And, and that's the genius of our constitutional design. And it's exactly what I think too many members of Congress, frankly, fail to appreciate and understand. You know, I've said before that we don't select members of Congress based on their policy acumen or historical understanding or sophistication. We select them based on how much they can fundraise. And you know, this is the kind of problem we should expect as long as we're committed to that process. Which you saw when you were challenging uh, someone who's a little bit of good at fundraising, has a little In experience. Nancy Pelosi. Not, not only did I see that, you know, the impact of, of corporate fundraising and skewing elections, but I also encountered election disinformation promoted by nominally progressive outlets that you know, didn't check facts and aired racist accusations without any fact checking. And, you know, this idea of, I want to introduce a further concept here, which I think might be at play in some of the other issues, but dark media money sources, you know, we've, we've seen public admissions of money paid by a PR firm that was promoting election disinformation to news outlets that published that disinformation and then silenced the whistleblowers and the evidence when they came forward. And that's so many layers of the problem at once. It's almost like standing between mirrors. But uh, this is, you know, election disinformation is unfortunately a dynamic, a problem with which I have become entirely all too personally familiar. And just so listeners you know, they probably do listen to viewers know, uh, uh, Shahid ran uh, against uh, Nancy Pelosi in the jungle primary. And then the general election. I was her and general then, election right. challenger as well. Right, because of the way California works, general election too. And there was very, I guess we can say, irresponsible journalism that was done uh, about your campaign and about you. You know, you said that you don't know if the uh, members of Congress know the difference um, or are cognizant of the fact of, of this brainwashing um, and how the real need is to have alternative um, information sources um, or platforms or pu publications outlets. But I, I also wonder if they, they do know that, right? I mean, often, especially with the Dems, Democrats, we think, or a part of us thinks for maybe five minutes that they, that there's maybe some, uh, you know, um, good faith confusion as opposed to um, bad faith awareness. Is it nefarious or is it ignorant? Yeah, right. It's hard sometimes to right. distinguish between the yeah. two, right? Right. A while ago, it was pretty much an accepted tenet of liberalism that the way we deal with bad speech is exactly as you described, with, with more and better speech, with more alternative voices, more alternative media, uh, more independent media. And somehow, you know, in the last five, 10 years, that that's kind of fallen out of fashion a little bit. Um, is that is that something you've noticed and uh, do you have an, an explanation for why that is certainly noticed it and i think the explanation has a single word trump i think democrats were faced with the sort of nightmare scenario you might think of our former president as a perfectly weaponized exploiter of the constitutional permissions that the founders built in and i think democrats are responding to the abuses of that system in a very linear fashion without recognizing the way in which the linear response creates a problem worse than the one they're responding to. So for instance, Trump and right-wing media spreading disinformation is a problem. Having a single organ of truth deciding what is true and what is not that everybody else would have to follow, that's a problem far worse 
frankly. I mean, that's stepping from, you know, Trump's world into Orwell's world, or frankly, possibly even worse, Kafka's world, where it's not even coherent. It's just random. And I think Kafka, frankly, describes contemporary reality better even than Orwell. And, <laughs> and I think if, if Democrats recognize that, they would understand that this sort of ham-fisted, linear, knee-jerk response to disinformation is flirting with fire. It runs the risk of leaping out of the frying pan of right-wing disinformation into the fire of officially mandated truth. And, and that's the place that we have to, frankly, guard our constitutional commitments at precisely times like this when the political winds disregard the commitments that we made long ago. Uh, you know, this is, the, this is the risk of a democracy effectively overcorrecting. And I, the one point I want to raise here, and I think you touched on it earlier, Matt, is it's not just overcorrection for its own sake. It's overcorrection for the sake of protecting corporate capital. And it's one thing to put corporate capital before people. It's an entirely different thing to put corporate capital not only before the interests of 300 million Americans, but also our constitutional framework. And this is just one among many examples of how the corporate bipartisan corporate rule of Congress is leading us into a ditch. Just this morning, we saw uh, Twitter removed a number of accounts, uh, apparently for undermining faith in NATO. Uh, that was a that was a new explanation. They were that's new to me. Uh, wow. Hundred hundred accounts. They claimed they were they were they were Russian related. Um, so that which may or may not be true, but it it just it just speaks to to me to what the end game can end up being when you have a, a very centralized uh, control over information. You, you might end up getting you know something that tells you that there's only one way to look at nato or or and you know i wonder how many people who are politically liberal are, are thinking in that direction well just to extend it if i may you know you were talking about twitter we discovered in the last 48 hours that twitter's been suppressing our campaign content for reasons that are not clear not disclosed not appealable but a supporter flagged that you know there's a pin post on our Twitter profile talking about Biden abdicating responsibility over the COVID dynamic, as he said at one point, there's nothing the government can do to drive down deaths. And we lay out half a dozen things that he could do. So apparently, Twitter decided that was objectionable. And, and someone sent us a screen cap of our own posts being unavailable to them. And you know, it's, it's one thing as a challenger to the most powerful corporate politician on the planet to fight on a level playing field. It's a different thing when the press is spreading lies about you. It's an entirely different thing when online corporate tech platforms won't remove the account, but will just hide the content from the public. And you know, this is, there's so many layers of that problem that extend even beyond, you know, it's not just Trump and right-wing misinformation uh, and the specter of overhanded government responses. And it's not just unethical corporate press outlets that'll amplify accusation at the drop of a hat, you know, without checking their facts. It's also corporate tech platforms that are entirely not just arbitrary in how they enforce their own guidelines, but inaccessible. There's no actual way to resolve these problems. It's just like a fate of the universe. And again, this is, this is the, this draws us back to the monopoly problem, because if you could just take your content and your social graph, and your contacts and your messages to another platform, no one would frankly care whether Twitter or Facebook or Amazon or Apple deplatforms anyone because you could just go somewhere else. So you might say that the constitutional framework of inviting more speech, it's fallen on the shoals of corporate concentration. That's why the historical solution has stopped working because there just aren't enough voices in the mix to provide alternative pathways to the public. And so some of that problem is the press, some of that problem is the you know, 
dark money media influencers, some of that problem or the tech platforms. But it does seem that Congress is looking, you know, sort of in the one place that it's not supposed to, that is constitutionally not permitted to look and avoiding all of the frankly necessary places that it should be looking like antitrust regulation, like opportunities for users to appeal content moderation decisions or process uh, solutions that right. wouldn't necessarily because lean on those companies, those companies might be more mo motivated to a be more transparent and b do that less if they actually had to worry about losing, um, you know, your business or view or, or users to some other platform. But since they increasingly don't have to worry about that, they're, I, 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 they're uh, sort of encouraged to behave a little bit more in that direction. Is, is that the idea? Yeah, you might say that you know the, the tech companies, because they have such heavy weight within their respective spheres, they've emerged as something like a town square, but we don't have constitutional rights in those spaces in the same way that we do in actual town squares, right? You have a right to speak in a town square. I don't even have a right to speak on Twitter. If I speak, the, the platform will suppress the content even to people who've chosen to seek it. Uh, you know, and, and it's not just Twitter. I mean, to make this point, you know, sharp YouTube, Google subsidiary, it was about a year ago, almost to the month. I remember doing an interview with an independent journalist in New York, Walker Bragman, ironically about government secrecy and the reauthorization of the Patriot Act. And YouTube censored that interview within minutes of it posting to the web. And he, the, we did it again and, and he saved a local copy. But the first time we did it, there was no local copy. YouTube was the only source, oh. kind of like when status coup was capturing video of the Capitol insurrection and YouTube took it down because some algorithm decided this isn't something we want people to see. But that's exactly where the First Amendment dies because the whole point of the First Amendment is we have a right to hear and see anything. No one's supposed to have the right to keep it from us. And if some private entity keeps it from us, the theory is that someone else will deliver it. But you know, the problem in a YouTube and Twitter world where the companies have effectively monopoly control within their respective segments <clears throat> is that there are no other voices to deliver that content. And, and that's, again, what, what takes me back to antitrust. We have a free speech debate and a First Amendment debate for which the solutions are not restrictions on speech. The solutions are, in fact, stronger antitrust enforcement, newer, stronger, more expansive antitrust laws. Uh, and, and that, frankly, would fix the problem, again, without flirting with throwing the constitutional baby out with the bathwater. That's, I think, the most one of the most dangerous parts of this is that it's not just the, oh, what's going to happen to the to the material that, get, that gets censored, um, that gets taken down, or that gets like called out or tagged, but but what that does to the material that's not subjected to that, and how it suggests that that is vetted and that is legitimate, right? So mm -hmm. like Colin Powell um, talking about WMDs, or there's so many examples of things that should be flagged that aren't, and if when when we have institutions or companies flagging some things and not the others. It really gives the others kind of a stamp of a, approval and legitimacy that it doesn't deserve. Absolutely. You know, another example here, which has stretched on for 20 years, is the war in Afghanistan. The Washington Post, I think it was 2019, published a report acknowledging and documenting that 20 years of reports about supposed military progress in Afghanistan, that it was all based on lies, that we've in fact made no progress there over the course of the longest war in US history. How many stories? in the course of the last 20 years had depicted a false narrative of progress, usually parroting statements by officials. Every single one of those stories was misinformation. Right. Yeah, I remember that piece, but like, it's not like um, journal, I mean, journalists and reporters went around being like, oh my goodness, we've been 
uh, reporting misinformation, disinformation, we're now going to correct the record. Right. And, and not only did the narrative not go uncorrected, but we're still at war in a years later. And there are real consequences to this problem of allowing misinformation. And, and I think the problem that you're, you're driving at, Katie, is that there's no way for people to frankly know what's true and what's not. Every time a reporter quotes an anonymous official source, that's potentially misinformation. Right. Uh, it, it's often misinformation. That's why officials seek anonymity, so they can say things either that aren't true, or in some cases, so they can say things that are true that they would be held accountable for right. if they said it publicly. But how do you know which is which? Yeah, right. I, when no. when James Clapper says to Congress that the NSA isn't monitoring millions of Americans, that was misinformation, and that wasn't just in the media. That was in the in a congressional hearing. And if you right. dare right. ask anybody questions about that, they arrest you in the Senate for daring to ask how officials get away with telling lies. That happened to me too. As Shahid knows firsthand, yeah. Not just a hypothetical uh, <laughs> a, a conjecture about what would happen, but something that happened to him. If there's no um, you know, sort of vibrant alternative media that exists, or if there isn't sort of unfettered free discourse, who's gonna challenge those official deceptions? In, in other words, a lot of the solutions that are being contemplated envision some kind of sort of centralized fact-checking apparatus that's going to determine like a ministry what, of truth yeah like a ministry of truth i mean yeah that, that that's the orwellian conception um but but that's what they're talking about and uh, you know i just wonder if uh first of all is that is that even something that can realistically and logistically be done but b wouldn't that just provide a monopoly on error to to you know, sort of the, the people who are in control of that exact apparatus. Exactly. That, that's why the founders were fearful of any idea of official truth. It's one reason we have a First Amendment is that they feared precisely that possibility of facts being dictated by self-interested actors. Another way to put this, let's just rewind the tape, say six months. If we had a ministry of truth that somehow was accountable to or had to answer to Donald Trump, what would that look like? And the whole point here is that the, eight, the organs of the state can be captured. That's what Donald Trump represented. And frankly, the failure of the Senate to convict him in the context of either of his impeachments uh, suggests that he himself might very well be back in spite of his litany of assaults on our republic. And anything that we might construct as a solution, like a ministry of truth, we should acknowledge and anticipate the possibility, even the likelihood of it falling into the hands of the other political side. And this is one reason why constitutional limits are so important because they're guardrails. They're supposed to limit what can be done politically precisely so that we, the people of the United States, don't end up in the crosshairs. And that's unfortunately what's happening here, where the information available to us, uh, you know, people in Congress are talking about limiting what information we can get. And, and, and I would you know, throw my lot in here with Brandeis and Madison. We shouldn't be trying to silence speech if we think that disinformation is a problem. That's why we, frankly, are really excited about voices like your own or the gray zone or democracy now or you know the litany of independent outlets that provide that layer of fact checking that so many of the corporate sources have effectively abandoned. Um, and I think you're absolutely right, Matt. If, if we allow any official designation of what is true and what is not, we've effectively lost a really crucial part of what and I say this consciously, what has long made America great. What's your response to uh, the discussion that uh, Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton had after January 6th, where they were immediately talking about a new domestic war on terror and 
um, the sort of expansion of, of that whole idea. Uh, first of all, it seemed to me that the original war on terror was already sufficiently, uh, you know, sufficiently targeted inward. Uh, but what what could that end up being, and and what are your concerns there, if you have any? It could be another witch hunt. Yeah. Under George Bush in the 2000s, Muslim mosques across the country were infiltrated by FBI agents who were doing things like having sexual trysts under false pretenses, uh, blackmail operations. And this was widespread. I, I, ran a, I launched a program in a nonprofit to confront more or less precisely that. Um, talked to the FBI director, Robert Mueller, who people came to recast in a different role many years later. Nice and it's Brooks Brothers suits. Is that what he does wear good suits while <laughs> conducting long before his investigation that so many you know liberals and Democrats were excited about into Donald Trump that ultimately you know didn't go where people wanted it to. I saw him engineer and be the executor of Bush's assault on the American Muslim community. And another war on terror will simply expand that. A couple of things to note here. Then this is an interesting irony. One of the things uh, fueling right-wing populist rage is precisely the emergence of a secret surveillance state that they feel offends their rights. And so doubling down on the constitutional offense uh, would not only fail to fix the problem, it would frankly make it worse. There's a, in the same way that antitrust presents a better solution to these sort of ham-fisted, I'll say ignorant, linear responses. Similarly, even in the context of the sort of legitimate national security threats that we saw presented by right-wing populism and violence in the capital insurrection, there are better ways to address that too. There's a whistleblower from the FBI who came forward 17 years ago to warn us that white supremacist groups around the country were organizing, that they were militarized, that they were recruiting law enforcement and former military people specifically for their training. His name was Michael German, and he was widely ignored. And we should always be wary of policymakers and journalists who claim surprise in the face of long known facts and then start clamoring for solutions that are as ignorant as their previous obliviousness. Uh, and this is a pattern, unfortunately, that repeats itself. And I, I would like to see us make better choices. That's going to require picking some different people, uh, people who understand these issues instead of who only understand fundraising and do whatever their you know, political staff tell them to do. Uh, you know, that there is, we need constitutional consciences in Congress. And that's frankly why I ran and why I'm considering running again. Uh, Congress needs a constitutional conscience. And, and the last thing I'd put here is in the freedom of information arena, there's a lot to be done. So the Freedom of Information Act is effectively broken. National security agencies, other agencies routinely deny information requests that should produce information to the public behind self-serving rationales that no one ever assesses. And so if, if, if Congress wants to do something useful here, they could, for instance, amend the Freedom of Information Act to force executive branch agencies to provide a proactive justification for the denial of any FOIA request or similarly, any decision to classify a document. Those are things that would release more information into the public sphere. They're things that would help relieve disinformation. No one in Congress seems to be talking about those much more effective, constitutionally legitimate alternatives just here's a, a sort of a broader question has the age of trump made it more difficult to be a constitutional lawyer uh yes. in other in other words uh and, and you know he there's such an odiousness and uh, on on the other side 
and there, there, there's such an obvious response to a lot of uh, objections on traditional constitutional grounds that it becomes difficult to argue with for, for a lot of things. Um, how, how have you dealt with that? I mean, or, or is that something that you thought about before? No, certainly thought about it. I think it's, it's hit each of us in different ways. You know, so yeah. for instance, people in the media uh, landscape who might be, you know, for instance, challenging Russia again and this sort of like construction of a you know foreign foe when we have plenty lurking here domestically, uh, that is, uh, it forces people often into the position of defending people they politically don't like in order to defend the constitutional norm, right? In other words, if you're offended by uh, Democrats silencing news outlets and proposing a ministry of truth, in order to combat that and assert the constitutional norm, you have to effectively defend the interests of the other political side. And, and for many of us, the other political side is not one that we have any interest in or support for. So that's a layer of complication. I think there's another challenge here, which just relates to which way the skepticism is going. And you know, it's interesting, Donald Trump himself plays a somewhat interesting role here in the same way that a stopped clock is right twice a day. <laughs> I would give him credit for exactly two things. One, claiming, though I don't think he was ever sincere, to wanting to end the war in Afghanistan, and two, challenging the deep state, which is real. And Eisenhower warned us 65 years ago that democracy in America would be compromised by a combination of military and industry. And, and the, the only thing, frankly, I think that Donald Trump ever said that had any legitimacy was, was acknowledging the sort of way in which our military industrial corruption machine has been siphoning resources away from the American public for decades. Uh, I, I think in that context where you have a head of state actually calling out the secret apparatus that is the hole in the bucket of our constitutional democracy, uh, and yet still that very same figure is a right-wing demagogue inviting political violence, uh, you know, stoking uh, skepticism into the election results, making false claims at the pace of you know one every five minutes, it, it becomes very difficult, I think, for reasonable people, not only to parse the fact from the fiction, but even for coherence to emerge. And that's the point, maybe the point I'd make here is that in demonizing uh, appropriately someone who was you know the effective, I would say the analog of a political demon, I kind of think of that as, as, as what Donald Trump may have represented, you know, a a uh, uh, nefarious, not just ignorant actor. We have to also be wary of how our responses to those very real threats can create problems worse than the ones to which we're responding. You know, when a when a cure is worse than the disease, we should be aware of that. And I, I just to be clear, I don't mean that literally. You know, we have a pandemic happening, and I'm very eager to see right. people get vaccinated. But in this context of a constitutional disease, election misinformation peddled to confuse voters and undermine the integrity of elections. That is a real disease. But when we think about cures, the cure should not be killing free speech in America, which is what any step along the lines of what Democrats have been suggesting would do. Uh, you know, We should be conscious that before addressing this as a political matter, we have constitutional allegiances first. And that's to a process, a setup, a system where we the people can get access to information and we're entitled to make our own decisions about what is true and what is not. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in some ways, there was almost like a, a faulty syllogism that developed with, with Trump where Trump is a liar. Uh, Trump says thing X, therefore thing X must be a lie. 
so, you know, he would frequently say things, you know, I remember, I remember covering his campaign and he started somewhat randomly, I thought he started going off on NATO uh, in the spring of 2016, talking about how we pay too much. We have too much of a burden financially compared to the other countries. The mission's outdated. What do we really need it for? And, you know, in, in the hodgepodge of things that he was saying, maybe 60, 65 percent of it was legitimate. But uh, what ended up happening was the sort of counter um, uh, messaging that came back from all the pundits was, see, you know, Donald Trump said this about NATO, therefore NATO must be, you know, above criticism. Uh, and I felt like that that instinct replicated itself constantly, especially when it came to speech issues. But um, I don't know. I just wondered what you thought about that as well. No, I, I think you're right. Uh, you know, we, we should assess truth based on the information, not on the speaker. And, you know, I've seen plenty of Democrats promote disinformation. Every time one of them asks, how are we going to pay for Medicare for all? That's effectively disinformation. We have plenty of resources to pay for that and the Green New Deal, whether it was in the you know, the, the context of the Federal Reserve printing more money or whether it's in the context of taking that money back from the Pentagon. And, and, and every time I hear a corporate, so much of the corporate Democratic line is based on misinformation, not very dissimilar from that of Republicans. It's different disinformation, but it's still disinformation. And if we have a ministry of truth, one thing we can predict is it's not going to be neutral. It will be controlled by whoever controls it. And, and that's exactly why we have a First Amendment in this country. And it's why the Federalist Papers Number 10 were so critical in this commitment to more speech rather than less speech as a constitutional norm, because we have made a decision long ago that we don't trust authority with very good reasons. If anybody should demonstrate that, it's Donald Trump. So the people who come in his wake, we shouldn't be any more deferential to them just because they're not him. You know, we should be aware that our allegiance is first to ourselves as the people of the United States. Uh, and, and that doesn't, that means that we can't accept uh, political heroes as our stand-ins, whether it's Nancy Pelosi or whether it's Joe Biden, uh, or for some people, whether it's Donald Trump or Ted Cruz. Like these people ultimately have their own interests and their careers that we're promoting. And we can't trust the designation of what is true or not to anyone in government. That's supposed to be a thing that the government doesn't have a chance to lean on the scale of. And you know, as we've observed, it happens entirely in too many different ways, whether it's denying facts to the public, like in the FOIA context or the classified information context, or feeding lies to the public, like when Colin Powell was selling the Iraq war on national television, international television. Uh, and, and, and it comes from all sides, both the denial and the denial of truth and the insertion of falsehood. Both of those are tactics employed on you know, there aren't just two sides of the political fence, they're practiced on all sides of all the political fences. And it's, it's again, why it's so important that we guard the designation of truth for individuals. People are supposed to have the right to decide what is true based on the array of voices out there. And the more we limit that array, the more we diminish the set of voices that are available, the more we deny information to the American public, the faster we kill democracy. Something that um, really, is disturbing to me is again the the way that democrats or liberals take advantage of trump's um over the top dishonesty to push their own much more much subtler dishonesty but we see you know and i've said this on this show i've said this on my show a bunch of times on like a broken record but you know as long as i said this about cuomo as long as you don't suggest 
he was hailed as a hero and as a voice of reason and responsible because he basically didn't suggest injecting bleach <laughs> into your lungs. And anything right. short of that and short of like uh, saying overtly crazy things made him a hero and trustworthy. And now we see, thanks to people like David Sirota, who was reporting on this over the summer, no one paid attention, but yeah. David Sirota and assembly member Ron Kim, um, thanks to the fact that a Cuomo person actually stupidly admitted that they had uh, cooked the numbers and were uh, covering up nursing home deaths. I don't know if you follow this because this should be a national oh, yeah. story, but it isn't oh, yeah. as much as it should be. But he basically gave um, liability to uh, nursing homes for negligence. He, he snuck that into a bill so that he removes the one. liability protections, protections liability protections. Sorry, yes right, right. <clears throat> right. immunity right which removes one of the major deterrents from uh a major deterrent that stop would prevent people from you know uh, putting too many people in one room understaffing right so now there's no punitive damp nothing that they can face if they do that in terms of a uh, liability lawsuits but um and then lo and behold of course he he wanted to lower the number that uh he didn't want people to see how many people did die in nursing homes. And it, and it's so it's so Trump era, because not only does that happen, you're kind of run of the mill and well, particularly dark, um, sordid corruption, um, deadly corruption. But then the reason that they give for why they didn't want to reveal the numbers is because they didn't want Trump's Justice Department right. to use it. Um, but, you know, it's OK. So he wanted he's being Trumpian. Right. He's being Trumpian himself. And then you have um, Joe Biden, who, you know, the, the party of science, the party that believes in facts and reality, telling a little girl during a town hall that kids don't get uh, COVID. They don't carry it. They don't have to worry. Right. And it's like, OK, just because he doesn't. I'm glad he wears a mask. I am. And I'm glad he encourages people to wear a mask. But is that enough? Like, does that mean he gets a lie about how children uh, interact with COVID? Part of what you're more about that, yeah. Part of what I think you're describing in that, in the preceding question, is the binarization, yeah. let's say, of politics, where it's just two sides, right? It's them and us, and and that tribalization of our democracy is a problem unto itself, frankly, far you know beyond even you know the other ones that we're talking about. But when we look at Cuomo, he's the perfect example. I'm really eager for someone to do to Pelosi or for Pelosi what they finally did for Cuomo. You know, Cuomo yeah. squatted by for decades without Except anybody. That's what tried to. She, right. Well, people and I tried to with Pelosi, yeah, but yeah. in the same way that David Sirota was ignored when he was uh, reporting the facts about Cuomo right. that were politically inconvenient for Democrats to acknowledge. Now, I've, I've noted that for 20 years, Nancy Pelosi has supported conservative policy prerogatives right. from you know, the Iraq war to funding Trump's concentration camps, supporting his corporate trade deals, expanding his surveillance powers, even after impeaching him. And yet, you know, try to find a news outlet willing to practice independent journalism, calling yeah. out the entirely consistent, predictable, long-established conservatism of the centrist democratic leadership. Uh, and, you know, people will call that disinformation. Right. And, and that, you know, when, when Matt asks, if we create a ministry of truth, how is that going to be problematic? One way it'll be problematic is it will just protect whoever's in office. Right. And criticism of them will be derided as not true, even if it is. And nobody illustrates that better, I think, at the moment than, than Governor Cuomo because he was so widely praised across the entire nation as a supposed presidential candidate. And entirely because no one would look at his record. Right. And, and you know, when I've raised issues about Nancy Pelosi's record, her response was to dig her head in the sand, pretend I didn't exist, and just 
avoid any debate like the plague. If Americans had a chance to hear our leaders debate, we would make different decisions. But the fact that they don't show up to debate, I would describe that as an, another locus of disinformation. When a corporate politician is allowed to get away with whatever they say to the press, right. whether it's true or not, and they never have to debate anyone, that's misinformation that literally takes years to construct. And I, I see this, the, the identification of the disinformation problem being in a very limited scope you know, Democrats failing to acknowledge the broad scope of the problem. And I think that's one of the reasons why they're chasing a constitutionally problematic and ultimately, if it is ever pursued, I think ineffective solution. There's a lot of pessimism out there um, about sort of traditional, uh, the, the traditional American views on how we, how we deal with speech. What would, could you make the case for why Brandeis and Madison and all those, all those people why they aren't outdated and why combating bad speech with more speech is the way to go uh, and is still relevant? Uh, or, or are there things that need to be changed about that idea uh, going forward? Great question, great prompt. I see a lot of people reconsidering those constitutional norms, particularly driven by the fact that right-wing su white supremacists don't have any interest in democracy and and the line of the other side you know the people who are interested in deplatforming it often takes something like this if these people are allowed power the rest of us will end up in graves and we should respond accordingly and i completely recognize that and i and it's it's, it's appropriate certainly to criminalize violence and political violence but when we talk about speech the reason we have to allow it even if we don't like it even if it is odious is for two reasons one we have to trust our neighbors to be able to parse those facts from fiction because if we don't trust them even trying to hide the those that speech from them isn't going to fix the problem because they will find it through other means like underground means like the dark web for instance the other problem is that by suppressing any voice we feed into a narrative of marginalization that then helps that voice grow donald trump one of the things that he said a lot to his supporters one of the reasons that his voice is his voice often resonated with them was his claim that he was being marginalized by an establishment. And it is the fact of silencing that frankly draws more legitimacy to whatever cause is being silenced. If the one thing that we could do to most guarantee the expansion and metastasis of white, white supremacy and right-wing politics would be to try to suppress it from the public sphere. That's exactly how it would frankly feed on itself. It would reinforce the case that right-wingers make to recruits. And if we allow it into the public, fight it in the open, that might seem harder. It might be, it might seem more fraught, but it is the only way for that fight to stick. And it's a question here at the end of the day, who do we trust? And, and the fact is we shouldn't trust corporations. We shouldn't trust the government either. The only people that we frankly can trust each of us is ourselves. And the point of democracy is that we, the people rule. And part of that means that we should have access to information. Everybody should have access to information. And we should, this is a tough challenge, right? But we as people who are interested in issues like justice and equity, we have to fight the right wing in the open. We can't take the seemingly easy path of trying to suppress it because all that's going to do is make it stronger. People who I guess would identify as liberal have reconsidered these things and are becoming all of a sudden much more kind of skeptical, like Matt was referring to, of uh, maybe these things don't work. Maybe open debate isn't possible when you have a Cheeto Mussolini 
uh, unprecedented threat in office, um, which doesn't surprise me because I, I do think that there's a lot of, and I don't, I, I think this is a right-wing term in origin, although I'm obviously not right-wing, but so I'll come up with a left-wing uh, equivalent of it, but there is some uh, Trump derangement syndrome going on. But then you have leftists who are like, with whom I agree uh, on, on issues, you know, who are critical of Biden, who don't like the Democrats, um, who are maybe socialists or some form of socialist or, or to the left. And th there's something there too. Some people there also think that like free speech is, um, you know, like a capitalist luxury. Um, it's not, there's no free speech when, when, when there's some corporate media, um, not, which I don't disagree with, but along with that, they kind of reject the idea of, of doing anything to defend free speech and as bourgeois or liberal. Um, and I, an argument I've heard, which I find kind of weird, I get it, but it's weird is, well, we should let like right, the right wing be censored because they always censor us anyway. And at the same time, you, you have people to me, the more obvious, the more um, logical version of that is someone like Ali Abu Nima, who is the founder of Electronic Intifada who doesn't want like Twitter, for instance, um, moderating content or Facebook, because as he knows, like the first people to have their Facebook accounts deactivated are Palestinian critics of Israel, right? Right. So that, that makes sense to me, but can you kind of make the case for people who don't really care about the principles of free speech, but why it's perhaps going to harm leftists? Um, Absolutely. And I and I love that question. You're absolutely right. Two thoughts here. First about the liberals and then the leftists. First, people we call liberals are not really liberal. The word at some point meant a commitment to liberty. But if you're a liberal flirting with restrictions on the press, you can't call yourself liberal, just like if you're a liberal who supports mass surveillance or wars for profit or border detention camps. The the words that we use in politics have become, you know, widely shorn from their actual meanings. Many liberals or people who claim to be liberal are in fact centrist authoritarians. There are right-wing authoritarians like George Bush. There are centrist authoritarians like Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden. When leftists who, who champion deplatforming, right-wing speech, forget US history. And I'm not gonna ground this in principles. I'm just gonna lay it out in facts. For something like 50 years, the FBI was infiltrating and neutralizing every left-wing group across the United States. And it's not clear to me that COINTELPRO ever ended. Even in the 80s, after the Church Committee investigation, the FBI was still doing it to Latin American solidarity activists. In the 2000s, they were doing it to Muslims and, and anarchists and earth defenders. Yeah, know, the they project. never disbanded the red, red squads in like half the police departments in the country, right? Like they just- Exactly. Kept, yeah. That's right. I mean, it's not, you know, it's just, a, I think maybe last week or the week before that we uh, remembered the anniversary of, of Fred Hampton being shot. And you know, that's what happens to left-wing voices uh, in this country. And we shouldn't be advocating for deplatforming anybody because that will absolutely come full circle uh, to, to, and will be the first ones targeted, particularly because you know, leftists, I think, are very self-aware that we are confronting capital. And any powers that we confront or that we construct to confront the right wing, they will inevitably be used against us. And I don't even think that's going to take a long time. I mean, I think that the, the current centrist authoritarians in Congress are frankly very eager to use 
any new tools against the left because they recognize that it is the left that threatens them more than the right. Uh, and, and it's one reason why I think leftists should be more committed to our own rights. We don't see ourselves standing in the shoes of the people who we are proposing to deplatform. And at right. the end of the day, you know, we see the difference. I'm sure the right wing sees the difference. The centrist authoritarians don't see a difference and they don't frankly care. All they see is threats to power. And we have to acknowledge that any powers that we allow the government to have to silence or suppress or limit the reach of speech, they will inevitably be used as equal opportunity uh, weapons to silence critics in all directions. And that's something that critics in all directions should share an interest in stopping, not welcoming. Right, yeah. And it's easier to see for, for leftists, it's easier to see when Muslims were the target after 9-11 than it is for them to see when white supremacists are the target, allegedly, um, or used as the face of those targets now. Absolutely, and I wanna make you know, one sort of caveat here clear. The First Amendment protects speech. It doesn't protect violence. It doesn't protect acts. And so what we, if we're really concerned about right-wing violence, which I am, we could heed the voices of whistleblowers like Michael German, and we could be exploring right-wing networks. And when they do things like shoot up a shopping mall or a school, or you know, there are right-wing attacks all the time or occupy public lands, we can have actual investigations and prosecutions of those legitimate real crimes. We shouldn't be resting on this frankly weak, timid alternative of trying to silence speech. We should invite speech, combat it publicly and openly, and violent acts or networks that are promoting them, we should absolutely pursue prosecutions. That makes perfect sense. The difference between a crime and a word. Mm. And, and we have to be thoughtful about that distinction when we're responding to it, especially as people who are confronting power and aware that we're confronting power. And was, wasn't that the original rub with the whole clear and present danger standard? Like when it's imposed it, um, you know, I, I, I believe they, they, they thought that the actual threats were worth the, the sacrifice, but they, some of those same judges eventually came around to the idea that there was just too much policing of ideas going on uh, and that, that it had gone too far. Right. That's I mean, right. I mean, that, 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 that's, that's, that's really the controversy here, right, is when when you're curtailing somebody's ideas versus their plans to act right right and it's perfectly legitimate when is that to standard from action present danger standard so i think that would have been the whitney case i think it was repudiated 20s. in brandenburg versus ohio yeah. yeah matt's sort of describing the evolution of first amendment law in the sort of first half of the 20th century and you know it's it's an important evolution for us to remember and it's a history that we can't lose sight of even if too many supposedly liberal current members of Congress don't know that history or seem not to care about it. It's an incredibly important history because it's one that we should not retread. There's no reason to, to walk that path again. Uh, even if we, we do again have legitimate fears and, and concerns about right wing white supremacy and political violence and misinformation, but misinformation is not the same as political violence. And we should address those two problems with appropriately distinct solutions. Can you just give your thoughts on, on what Trump said or did that was that you consider to have incited violence, what he said or did that wasn't an incitement of violence? Like what were the things that he should have been either that violated Twitter's terms of service or that required prosecution? So with with Trump, I, I always said that the impeachment of Donald Trump shouldn't be based on his words at all. It should be based on his corruption. 
And that's what it never went to, right? I mean, the first impeachment was over a phone call inviting foreign interference in an election. The second impeachment was about an incitement to violence, which you know plays right up on the line. But the fact that he was pocketing public money throughout the time he was in the White House, that's what he should have been impeached for. And frankly, that's a bipartisan offense. It's not like Republican voters like the fact that he was right. taking their tax money to put in his pocket. Um, but you know, that's also a bipartisan practice in Washington. Right, know, thinking yeah, exactly. about Nancy Pelosi no buying Tesla Right. 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 So, you know, without going after themselves, right? It would have brought down all of Washington. And frankly, yeah. that's what we need to do is bring down all of Washington. The corporate corruption that is endemic to both parties should absolutely be repudiated. But the solution there is not legal. It's political. It's electoral. We have to replace long-serving incumbents with new voices committed to our communities. In the case of Trump and his words, I, I don't think that words are the things to go after for someone like him. When he, when he invited people to march on the Capitol, there's some point at which that effectively becomes assault, right? Words can be uh, a threat themselves. And, and that's different than what we are talking about before in the context of the misinformation. So, you know, the invitation to violence that he issued is criminalizable. And, you know, the problem there is that we're talking about a head of state who a regular prosecutor can't reach. And that brings us back right. to the constitutional remedy of impeachment um, and, and the political limits on which it, you know, the political shoals on which it crashed, let's say. Would you but have to prove intent in that case or, or how, what, what's the standard to... In, in terms of the, the spoken threat? Yeah. Yeah, it would have to have a mens rea and a mens rea. So the right. mens rea is the state of mind. And that's, you know, where a lot of the debate sort of, you know, centered. The, the actus reus was pretty obvious, right? I mean, hundreds of people stormed the Capitol, broke sure. a bunch of windows, stole a bunch of things, and a bunch of people died. Uh, so there's plenty of, of the result. And, and the question at the end of the day is when we, when we have a spoken threat, like there's a difference between a spoken threat, like I'm going to kill you versus someone right. should go kill that guy. Isn't marching on the Capitol not inherently uh, violent or assault? Well, it goes both ways, right? Because you could say it's quintessentially political, petitioning our government for redress of grievances. And the question is, did Donald Trump instruct the mob to attack as opposed to just show up and make a right. bunch of noise? Because we're, right. we're constitutionally entitled to show up and make a right. bunch of noise. In fact, we, right? we like to do that on the left. Yeah. That's what we should be doing right, right now right, is yeah. showing up everywhere and making a right. noise. Right. Right? Uh, but then once you cross the line into threatening someone or instructing someone to commit violence, that's a different ball of wax. Sure. Uh, but you know, when we're talking about the misinformation that Congress is trying to combat, that's not what we're talking about. Right. They, they aren't spoken threats right. of the sort that would be appropriately. But did actual. Trump, I'm just, did Trump say anything that you think is a, as a, like a, a spoken threat. Yeah. You know, when, when he was talking about the, the need to go to the Capitol and stay yeah. there and watch over the electors, I think it was implicit. I don't know if that was legally actionable. I mean, it was yeah. a head of state anyway, so it wouldn't be, you know, sure, we, right. we were having to, you know, change the sort of like uh, figures in order to maintain right. the hypothetical. Um, you know, if somebody else said it, would it have been criminal? Quite likely. Um, but because it's a head of state, ultimately it would have to be impeachment. Right. It's not like right, a regular yeah. garden variety right, prosecution. Yeah, exactly. so, so that puts the, us in a different box. The standard the, is different, right? The thing because that of, yeah. stood out to me that he said was the Proud Boys um, stand by. What was it? Stand down, but stand, stand by. down and stand by. Yep, yeah, and that to me was. Biden. Yeah, yep. that was like to me the thing that stood out the most, I think, as a potential like as a as a pre, like a pep talk or to to, to people who uh 
to engage in violence. It absolutely was, but just note that this is where text and implication become important to parse. Mm -hmm. You know, one reason we're concerned about that is it's ultimately it's it's the implication of his words that concern us. His words, in fact, were to stand down yeah, right. and stand by. That's not actually a threat. We recognize the threat in it because right. he's welcoming paramilitaries right. to stand by, presumably right. for something else. And that's the part where right. we're, I think, appropriately concerned about. Right. But I don't think that that's an object of appropriate legal action, right. yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. It's just weird because I don't like Trump and I don't like defending him. But, you know, I do think that had people f shifted their focus onto different things, they could have, like, provided a much better opposition um, uh, resistance than they did. And, and in this, in a similar way, I think that, you know, like overly the rush to qual to qualify everything he said as violent, um, or everything he said as, you know, Putin run or for the sake of Putin was just so stupid. It was yes. just so, it was such bad strategy. Well, and we should recognize it from people again, this is this came up in an earlier context, but when people claim surprise at things that were entirely predictable, yeah. we should be skeptical of whatever else they say. Right. And it's not as if the Capitol insurrection was unpredictable. He'd been forecasting it for weeks. Right. And when we're concerned about it, it makes sense to for people to respond. But I don't think the speech was the problem. The problem right. on the Capitol insurrection is that we paid seven hundred fifty billion dollars last year for a defense apparatus that proved itself to be literally worthless worthless it took you know there's there's a eugene goodman comes to mind as a national hero he's like the paul revere of our era right. but where was the 750 billion dollars that we paid to the department of so-called defense when we needed it that's the scandal here not the word spoken by the president that became the discreet you know launching pad for the insurrection sure. I, I, there's a lot of uh I hesitate to use it in this sharp term. There's a lot of ignorance on Capitol Hill that wraps itself proudly in its ignorance and then strikes out randomly when, you know, these people who live there and pursue their corporate careers are finally forced to confront realities that they have chosen for, in some cases, decades to ignore. And, and that surprise, I think, is disqualifying both for those people to be taken seriously or, frankly, for them to serve in Congress. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Todd. I really appreciate it. And uh, good luck and uh, enjoy yourself on your vacation. Many yeah. thanks. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. No, that Love. was great. Um, Love talking to him. Yeah, he's very knowledgeable. And Makes honestly, it's it's sad. Like, whenever I talk to him, I feel, like, nostalgic. Um because there was a time when the things that he was saying were completely uncontroversial right. among like self-described liberals and now it's it's like a fight to um the, to the death yeah to even explain what what the origins of some of these ideas are uh so uh but he's great um if, you know throughout all of it he doesn't lose sight of what he actually believes in and yeah. um and he knows a lot about the topic, so I think we all learned a lot. Yeah, and I really wanted to make sure we had someone on um, for selfish reasons, because uh, I'm tired of being called a right-winger or right-wing adjacent, but not really selfish reasons. I actually think it's alarming and, and dangerous that these things are things that not only libs, who I expect to kind of give those things up, because I don't find them very principled right now, but that leftists sometimes um, lose sight of. So I wanted to make sure that we brought in someone who was not you know, a Fox News supporter to talk about this. Yeah. And, you and know, not a contrarian either by nature. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it, he's he's guided by principle. 
Yeah, I mean, I, str I struggle with that because, um, you know, with especially with this the, this latest round of um, actions by tech companies uh, and maybe now potentially cable providers, these should naturally be uh, issues that like yeah. deep, that deeply concern both the left, right, and traditional liberals. And they don't, for the most part. I mean, we, we've seen, we talked to, um, uh, you know, Andre from uh, the World Socialist website and, you know, Andre Damon, and they're concerned about it, but, uh, but you know. And Ali really. Abunima from uh, Ali Abunima. Electronic Intifada, Ab and they're concerned with it, right. They're concerned with it, but, um, but for a lot of other people, there's, I think there's a, there's a, um, there's like a strategic calculation that a lot of people are making that they think this is going to end up um, working in their favor. Uh, and so the whole idea of worrying about the principle, the underlying principle is like not that important. Um, and, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe, maybe that's an outdated concept, who knows, but, uh, but um, I don't think so. Sometimes I don't even think it's strategic. I think it's like about validation or or performative allyship. I mean, not all of it. I'm not I'm not like casting um, aspersions on on everyone's motives, but I do think there's like a group think. There's an I understand the appeal. It's kind of like when you hear a terrible story and you don't believe in the death penalty and you hear a terrible story about some crime and you're like that person should get it, but then you like snap out of it because you realize it's a visceral, irrational, emotional thing. Um, and that those should not be the guiding principles. Um, right. So it's kind of similar to that. Well, again, and, and this is this is why I asked that question of him about, uh, you know, is it hard to be a constitutional lawyer in the, in the Trump age? And, and um, you know, I, I think it is. It's, it's, it's hard to continually defend people um, on the right. Yeah. You know? uh, and, and in this particular case, you know, this idea that that's being discussed by you know these members of the house and we didn't really get into this but um yeah. but uh you know of of appealing to a, a handful of um cable distributors to to try to remove uh fox and newsmax and oan uh it's it's a it's a very dangerous idea but it's very it puts you in a very awkward position of having to um, of having to defend these these channels that I yeah. can't like I can't I literally can't watch OAN. Yeah, you know it's like, awful, right? Yeah, like I, I I can't I can't get through even a few minutes of it. Um, but uh, but you know, I just, yeah, it, it's and just I, it's just very difficult. Yeah, and I watched leftists like fellow leftists who agree with me. Like it's not that hard to say like we have to not. This is a bad precedent. And I hate OAN, and this is still a bad idea for X, Y, Z reasons. But some will just be like, "That this is what we should be doing. What we should be doing is fighting so that there is, you know, more egalitarian, independent media. It's like, sure, but we can do those things and stop this at the same time or try to. Um, it's like people don't want to be in that position. It's like it makes them feel dirty. But yeah, and, and we have to have those discussions or else, yeah. Right, and and the crazy one of the things that I was trying to write about in the in, in the piece about 
Fox News is that the the long backstory to all of this is that we've wiped out this kind of vibrant system of local newspapers. Right. Um, you know, what, roughly half of the staff yeah. in journalism is lo- uh, is now gone. We've lost thirty five billion dollars in revenues and. 17 years or something like that and um and as a result we were left with just a couple of sort of big groups of media carriers and so it's it becomes a much bigger deal when when uh when there's a movement to try to remove one or the other of these groups yeah because now you're reducing it, you know, now you're not re- like removing one channel out of 5,000, you're removing one out of two, basically, right. you know, and, uh, and it, it makes it much more dangerous. But anyway, it was a really, it was really interesting to, yeah. to, 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 uh, to talk with him. Yes. So. And thanks so much for watching the show. Make sure that you follow the Useful Idiots Pod hashtag, hashtag Useful Idiots Pod. Also the account Useful Idiots 2, Twitter account. That's right. And follow it closely is yes. uh, something that we should say. Yeah, um, follow it closely, uh, f- early and, and frequently, early um, and often. Early and often. Yeah. There's also a Facebook page, usually yeah. it's Facebook page, yeah. And um, we want to thank our producer, Reed Dunley, and uh, the band Sheer Mag for the theme song. Absolutely right. And thanks so much, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll check in with you again next week. See you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.